Welcome to Wicked Crime, a Massachusetts true crime podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and a reminder that listener discretion is advised. So today we're going back to someone I talked about way back in the Lady of the Dunes episode, which I recommend you checking out if you haven't already. But in that episode, I touched briefly on Haddon Clark because he was someone people thought might have been responsible for the unsolved Jane Doe murder in Provincetown on Cape Cod back in 1974. And he's a character, that is for certain. One of the names the media gave him was the cross-dressing cannibal, which I thought was just a little too much to make the title of this episode, just because, and I'm not sympathetic towards him or anything, but he was probably struggling with some pretty serious mental health issues, possibly schizophrenia, and also maybe even issues with his own gender identity. So I think calling him a cross-dresser isn't really fair, but let's break that all down. So Haddon was the second of four children, and he was born in April of 1951. He has an older brother, Bradfield, who was also pretty disturbed, but we'll talk about his crimes later on in the story. His parents, Flavia and Haddon Clark Sr., were pretty well-off people. She liked to brag that her family was descended from settlers of the Mayflower and also from people who fought in the Revolutionary War. Meanwhile, Haddon Clark Sr. had a father who was the mayor of White Plains, New York. He was a pretty smart guy, or so it seemed, because he had all these degrees in chemistry and there's a lot of claims that he helped invent plastic wrap, but I'm not really sure if that's true. The Clarks did move around a lot because Haddon's father was always trying to find new jobs to make more money, but when Haddon was born, they lived in New York, and plastic wrap was invented in Michigan at Dow Chemical by a man named Ralph Wiley in 1933. And it's like a little trivia for everyone here. It was actually created on accident while they were working on a special kind of wrap that the military used to protect planes and even the bottom of boots from the elements. John Riley, who was Ralph Wiley's boss, helped develop it and named it Saran Wrap after his daughters, Sarah and Anne. And they made it for household use in 1949 by getting rid of the green color and the smell. So actually what we use today isn't the same as what they made originally because at some point they had to like remove all these chemicals and shit that they were using in it and probably make it safer for everyone to use. But it made it less clingy, I guess. So yeah, kind of interesting. But did Haddon's dad help invent it in Michigan? I'm kind of leaning towards no, honestly. I couldn't find anything on it and every time you try and look up Haddon Clark Sr., you don't get anything. You just get the whole, he invented plastic wrap and just stuff about Haddon. And so the validity of all this is like pretty unknown. Not that we're all going to lose sleep wondering if a killer's dad invented freaking saran wrap. But anyway, on the outside, Flavia and Haddon Sr. seemed like they were a pretty normal couple, but they were actually very abusive towards each other, both physically and emotionally. They both thought Haddon was going to be a girl, so they spent a lot of his formative years referring to him as Kristen, and Flavia would dress him up in dresses. So you can only imagine that there was like some kind of effect that this was having on this kid. And it's not the first time we've actually seen something like this happen. So this already is happening to him, and on top of that, his mother believed that he had some kind of like developmental delay, so she took him to Yale to get tested for it. And they told her that he most likely had cerebral palsy and maybe even some like brain damage. And she blamed this all on a bad delivery, which they used apparently forceps and it wasn't done right. And they think it like damaged his brain when he was born. 
And because Haddon had all these issues, which who knows if Yale even got them right, his father started calling him retard. And I hate using that word, but it really is important here because maybe if he hadn't been verbally abused and physically abused by his parents and other people later in life, which we'll get to, I wouldn't be making this podcast on him. So let's add another layer of trauma to this kid because both his parents were alcoholics and they would fight verbally and physically with each other. And there was an instance where Haddon actually told his mother that his brother Bradfield had sexually abused him in their treehouse and she basically ignored it. And it was when he was young that he started getting pretty obsessed with this idea of revenge. If kids would make fun of him in the neighborhood, it wasn't out of the realm of possibility that he would like take their pets and kill them. So this kid is going through a lot. Now, when he gets into high school, he gets held back two years because he's just unable to keep up. And even though his parents like to call him stupid, he was apparently like brilliant at chess. So they mentioned this in the Curiosity Killed Nightcap podcast, which was an awesome reference, by the way, because he based the whole podcast off the Born Evil book by Adrian Havel. And I'm going to link this all in my website at wickedxcrime.wordpress.com. Basically, Haddon might have been a lot smarter than people gave him credit for. He was just called stupid so often that it really beat him down and he was already struggling. So obviously, this was like a very bad combination of things happening. In high school, his mother and sister Allison started having their underwear go missing and Haddon Sr. and Flavia caught Haddon wearing women's clothing. And this pissed his father off, it seems. And he took the viewpoint of, I'm going to beat this out of you. And he started whipping Haddon because of it. He even went to therapy for this and they said, oh, it's just a phase that he would eventually grow out of, which what I really like about the Curiosity Killed Nightcap podcast is that they talk about the very real possibility that maybe Haddon was trans and he had no idea that 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 was even a thing. And he was also just probably very confused anyway as a kid because his mother was referring to him as a girl. And that's why I think that it's a lot more complicated than just calling him, oh, he was a cross-dresser, when I think that there was, like, more gender identity stuff going on there. Haddon graduated high school at 20 years old, and he was the oldest kid in his class, but he ended up going to the Culinary Institute of America, and it seemed like the Clark kids were expected to go to college and be successful because even Bradfield went off and got a master's in business and then a PhD in psychology. Haddon actually was pretty decent at culinary school for the most part. Apparently, he made like a good ice sculptor. He was good at that. Not sure how you were going to use that, but like, okay, cool. The thing was, they all sort of thought he was weird. And the story goes that he got pissed at someone in his class and he urinated into a vat of mashed potatoes to get revenge. And I don't know if Haddon later admitted this or if someone noticed this or like how we know this information, but... You just gotta hope that no one ate those mashed potatoes. Like, this detail is bothering me a little bit because I'm probably, I'm, I'm probably thinking about it too much. But anyway, the damage there is done. Haddon tried getting jobs after he graduated, but it didn't work out for him. There was one instance of him drinking beef blood in a kitchen that he worked in and it got him fired. During this time, he was working on Cape Cod because his grandfather had a house in Wellfleet and like... I'm sorry, can you imagine these vacationers, and I have been one of them many times, who go to Provincetown to eat, like, a nice lunch, and you get some weird guy in the back drinking blood making your fish and chips? Like, no. Nope. Don't like that. And this was all happening between 1974 and 1979, which is why Haddon was later considered as a suspect in the Lady of the Dunes murder, because he was probably working on the Cape at the time. 
He did later confess in jail that he murdered the Lady of the Dunes, but there was really no way to prove this and no one took the confession too seriously, but he did claim to have murdered a number of women while living on the Cape, one of which he said that he cut off her hands and used her fingers as fishing bait. They did much later try and like uncover bodies that he said he buried in the dunes, but nothing ever came of it. And I do have to imagine that it would be really hard to find a body buried in the sand because it wasn't until many years later that they actually started to look and a lot can shift around. But Haddon also historically was not good at burying people very deep. So who knows if he actually did murder a bunch of women on Cape Cod. Since the whole chef thing wasn't going very well for him, Haddon enlists in the Navy when he was 29 years old in 1980 as a below-deck cook. The thing is, though, once again, he ends up getting horribly bullied. They found out that he wore women's underwear, so his fellow officers beat the shit out of him, like, all the time, and on one occasion, they even locked him in the freezer for hours. He did eventually get an honorable discharge in 1985, and I think it was because he was given some kind of concussion after his head got banged on an aircraft carrier. And I can only imagine that someone might have done this to him. And also, maybe, like, let's not hit the guy who has brain damage in the head. But he was left with 30% disability when he left the Navy and a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. And he definitely wasn't doing great when he came home. He started shoplifting women's underwear, which I believe he got arrested for. And it's around this time he goes to live with his younger brother, Jeff, in Silver Spring, Maryland. And Jeff was going through a nasty divorce at the time. And in the Nightcap podcast, they mentioned that he even hit his wife on a couple occasions. So Jeff wasn't the most stand-up guy either, but like, what can you expect from these kids who grew up watching their father beat their mother? But staying with Jeff ends up being a really bad idea. Like, really bad. At first, everything is cool. He gets along with the kids. He's paying his rent. But one day, he went to pick up six-year-old Eliza from school, and she refused to go with him, which had people thinking he was actually trying to kidnap her because of, this, like, the scene she was making. And apparently, once Jeff showed up to defuse the situation, he said, Don't worry, that's just Eliza's retired uncle, which completely set Haddon off. And so you can imagine that unpacking more of this drama probably wasn't a good thing. Somewhere down the line, he's caught masturbating in front of the kids, So there's no details on what happened here, not that I want them, but considering that he had a good relationship with the kids and Jeff at first, it's just strange to me that this happens. So it might have been like a they walked in on me thing or it was intentional, which certainly would have been a good reason to kick Haddon out and also pretty much proves that he's not right in the head. And Jeff is pretty much like, you have to go. You can't stay here anymore. And that's fair. On May 31st, 1986, Haddon was packing up his truck to leave when Jeff and the whole family are out to just give him some space to get out of there. And this is when six-year-old Michelle Dorr wanders over from her house and asks Haddon if Eliza was home. Michelle was the daughter of Carl and Dorothy Dorr, who were also going through a very nasty divorce. And on that day, she was hanging out at her dad's house, which was a few doors down from where Jeff Clark lived. They had watched movies and had snacks, and he let her go outside in her pink polka-dotted bathing suit to play in what I'm guessing was one of those, like, plastic blue kiddie pools. Meanwhile, Carl stayed inside and watched the Indy 500. And, like, I have trouble with people not keeping an eye on their children, especially little kids. But I also host a true crime podcast, so I think I might be a little more paranoid about things than most people. But anyway... 
Michelle did wander out of her backyard to the Clark house and Haddon, for whatever reason, saw this as an opportunity to do something really terrible. He told Michelle that Eliza was upstairs and he grabs a knife and follows her. One theory is that he decided to do this as revenge for the incident that happened at school with Eliza, and I think that's possible. Just like how he would kill people's pets when he was younger, now he decided to hurt a person instead. Hadn't attacked Michelle in Eliza's room and slashed at her chest. When he put a hand over her mouth, she actually bit him, which is a hell of a move from a kid who was probably very confused and very scared. But unfortunately, it only angered Haddon, and he ended up stabbing her in the throat. And this is what killed Michelle. There was blood everywhere, and he did his best to try and clean it up, and he even had to throw out this white rug in Eliza's room and hope that no one noticed or cared. And she had a hardwood floor, so it was easy to clean up. And you can only imagine that you find out later that the room you sleep in, your weird uncle killed your friend in. Like, that's insane to me. Like, that's some shit. So Haddon wrapped Michelle's body up and put her in his Navy bag and then placed her in the back of his truck. He worked at a country club at the time and he had to be there in 20 minutes after he kills Michelle. And so he went, punched in on time, and worked his whole shift with Michelle's body in the back of his truck. Meanwhile, Carl finally realized that he hadn't heard from Michelle in a bit and when he looked outside, she was gone. And he still isn't worried. He just figured she went to play with Eliza and it was very normal and not a big deal. Now, Carl had last seen Michelle around noon and it isn't until 5.30 that he finally decides to go and look for her. And he goes over to Jeff, who's home at the time, and he asks if Michelle was there and none of the Clarks had seen her that day. Which is when this guy finally starts to freak out, thank God. He looked all over the street for Michelle and he does call the police who immediately treat him as their number one suspect. And this is pretty common because statistically, when a little kid goes missing, it's usually a parent or a guardian who's responsible. And his ex-wife kind of like backs this whole thing up because she told police that he had threatened to kidnap Michelle before and also that he didn't want to pay the $400 a month in child support. Oh, and I believe he was also physically abusive towards his ex-wife too. So there's like a lot of red flags. I don't really blame the police for looking at him so hard. But the biggest error that Carl makes is that he tells police that he last saw Michelle at 2 p.m., not noon. And it seemed like his reasoning was that it wouldn't look as bad if it hadn't been as long since he had last seen her. But this gives Mr. Haddon Clark a decent alibi since he clocked into work for 2.46. So police figured that it wasn't really possible to take Michelle, do something with or to her, and then be able to drive to work and punch it on time. But meanwhile, when Haddon left work, he went to the VA hospital where they stitched up his hand for him. And I'm thinking it's the one Michelle bit. And like, wouldn't you be able to tell there was a human bite mark there? But maybe he had some kind of story lined up for that one. But he left around midnight and drove along a wooded road, pulled off to the side and carried Michelle's body into a patch of woods. Now, I don't know specifics, not that I want to know, but he did drink some of her blood and cannibalize some of her remains before he buried her in a shallow grave, which he covered in an old mattress. And I just really can't fathom any of that because what happened to Michelle, like just a little girl, really is just so awful. And it's this part of Haddon that I have trouble trying to find reason to. I get his gender identity issues and his mental illness and his revenge thing because he was bullied. But why the hell does anyone make the choice to eat another person? 
And he's not even the only one in his family to do this, but we'll get to that a little later. Regardless, Haddon leaves and Michelle would remain buried there and missing for 14 years. Police do bring Haddon in for questioning because they knew he was like kind of a weirdo and he was around the area where she went missing and he had this record. And when they brought him, they started talking to him about Michelle and they show him a picture of her and he burst into tears and has to run to the bathroom to throw up. So they're like, wow, okay, he knows something. And they push him more and more, but he doesn't admit to anything. When they ask him if he killed Michelle, though, he tells them, I don't know. I may have done something. Sometimes I black out and do things I don't remember. And even though he tells them this, and maybe they know he was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic, so they might have just thought he was making that up, they keep focusing on this this timeline that Carl gave them. And like I said, it essentially clears Haddon, and instead they let him go, and they focus all their efforts terrorizing Carl Dorr because they are convinced he is the one responsible. Which you can kind of see why, but at the same time, there's a lot of cases that we see where cops get this kind of tunnel vision once they decide someone is guilty and like that's it for them. They don't want to look at anybody else. But the worst part is that their questioning is so intense and aggressive that Carl has a mental breakdown and admits to killing his daughter twice. And it seems like very obvious that he got off the deep end because he was hallucinating and he got very paranoid and it got so bad that he was committed to the hospital psych ward. I guess I can't blame police for looking so strongly at Carl because he confessed to his daughter's murder, but to let Haddon go away so easily seemed like a mistake. Carl remained the prime suspect even though a body wasn't found and so it's not like they could do anything or arrest him, but you can imagine what this guy's life was like for the next 14 years when everyone thought he killed his daughter. Meanwhile, Haddon moved to live in with his mother in September of 1988, where she eventually got pissed at him for stealing all of her stuff and he flew off the handle at her. He started to beat her and nearly ran her over with his truck. She charged him with assault and battery and essentially just disowned him, which probably didn't help his already fragile mental state. So after this, completely alone, Haddon went and lived with a family in Bethesda, Maryland, the Mahanies. In December of 1988, they realized quick that he was not a good house guest. He was very strange and they had some kind of falling out and here comes Haddon with his love for revenge because he like trashed their house. He put a can of oil on the door so it would fall on you when you walked in. He put fish heads inside their piano, their chimney, and the stove. He painted their rug black with spray paint and finally, just like he did when he was a kid, He killed both their cats, leaving one in the freezer and one on the doormat. And this incident is one of the only things that actually really sticks with him because it later adds 10 years to the prison sentence that he gets. And I really don't understand how this doesn't get him put into jail because on top of all this going on, He was on probation for nearly running over his mother. Police had pulled him over and charged him with possession of a firearm, and he had been questioned in Michelle's disappearance where they already thought he might have been up to something. But instead, they give him probation and told him to get some psychiatric help, which doesn't really happen. Haddon did once say, and this is quoted from the Born Evil book, I think I have a split personality. I don't like to hurt people, but I do things I'm not aware of. Now, I think this is really telling because if he meant that, I think there is a very strong case for him possibly having DID, which is Dissociated Identity Disorder or Multiple Personality Disorder. 
A lot of people confuse this with schizophrenia, but schizophrenia involves hallucinations and like seeing people and hearing voices that aren't there, where DID does kind of have like some like auditory hallucinations to it, but there are multiple personalities and they're called alters that exist inside one person. There is a main personality who is usually called the host and this isn't always the present personality. So there isn't a lot of like firm psychological understanding to DID, though they think that it has a strong link to childhood trauma. And I do think a lot of people try and write it off as like a person acting or doing different characters to deal with these traumas. But I think it's more than that because to them, it's not something that they're controlling. People who have DID sometimes describe it as they have all these people who exist inside of them and there's always one alter who steps up into the spotlight and takes over. So if they're going through something really stressful, a more dominant and confident alter could take over. And there's a lot of stuff on YouTube about it and that's kind of like why I know about it. I used to watch videos about people with DID and it's very fascinating. And these alters can be different genders, they can be different ages and have different accents. Like, so what I'm getting at is... Haddon Clark might have been someone with DID and maybe he was even committing these crimes as a different alter and he wasn't himself. I remember reading in my earlier research that he liked to dress as a woman and call himself Kristen Bluefin. So maybe it was Kristen who did these bad things and Haddon was just along for the ride. I'm not saying that's the case like at all whatsoever. I'm not a psychologist, but it's certainly something that is interesting. Maybe it's a possibility. And I'm not sure it's one that's been fully considered because once he was in jail permanently, like why even rock the boat and study him even more than you already have to? But the reason I get into this possibility of him having DID is the end of his crimes. Once he left the Mahanis, he went to live in a tent in the woods alone, which is probably a bad idea, like obviously. In February of 1989, he finally was arrested on multiple counts of theft because he had started going to churches, sometimes dressed as a woman, and he would steal ladies' purses and coats. When the police finally caught him and pulled him over to search the car, he told police that he was a woman and he was only in jail for 45 days. And part of the reason was probably because he had a pretty solid lawyer, Donald Salzman, who gave him this card to hand out any police officer who tried to pull him over or arrest him. And basically it told them that they had to contact his lawyer, he was not allowed to answer any questions, and that he wasn't going to give any DNA. And there was a place on it for the officer to sign, like, they agreed to these terms. And Donald gave this to Haddon because he kind of felt bad for the guy, which he knew he wasn't right and he needed a lot of help. But this is also a bad thing because Haddon was out of jail and had this, like, talk to my lawyer card, and he was just free to go and do whatever he wanted. I'm not sure what he was up to when he got out of jail because it wasn't until 1991 that we have more information on him. And this is when he met Penny Hodling at a church in Bethesda, Maryland, and she took pity on him and ended up hiring him as her gardener. And he did a decent job. I mean, the man was good at ice sculptures. Maybe he was good at trimming a hedge. He actually seemed to like Penny because she treated him really kindly and was like very motherly to him and probably more motherly than his actual mother ever was. But she didn't seem to notice that her underwear would go missing and her clothes. And she did actually question him once about some garden tools that disappeared, but he just blew up at her. And Haddon was allowed to like get himself something to eat in the kitchen and use the bathroom. So she trusted him a lot. Now, Penny had a daughter, Laura, 
who was away studying at Harvard, and he'd gone through her room at times and taken her things, but the problem came when she returned home after graduation in the summer of 1992, because now Haddon was not the object of Penny's attentions, it was her daughter. So the revenge plot begins. Penny unfortunately told Haddon that she would be away on business between October 17th to the 25th, and so on Saturday the 17th, Haddon went to a hardware store and bought duct tape, nylon cord, and some rope, and paid with a check. But in the memo line of the check, he wrote Laura. Now, like, come on. I mean, the cashier had no idea what this was for, but later when police get a hold of this check, they're like, okay, well, here we go. That night, Laura went to bed early, just after 10, because she had a big project that she was working on the next day at a law firm that she was temporarily working at in Washington. So, this is obviously a very bright girl, and she was also considering becoming a teacher later in life. But that night, at around midnight, hadn't entered the house with the spare key that he knew was there in the gardening shed. He was dressed to look like Penny, wearing a wig, carrying a black purse, and wore her underwear underneath all of his clothes. And he also carried a twenty-two caliber rifle under the trench coat that he wore. He entered Laura's room and asked her, Why are you in my bed? You can imagine what this was like, waking up to Haddon Clark, poking you with a gun, dressed like a woman, asking you that, and you she probably had no idea who he was at first. She probably didn't recognize him. He said to her, tell me I'm Laura. And she did, and she begged him not to hurt her. For whatever reason, he forced her to go take a bath, and then after that, he bound her wrists and ankles in duct tape. And after that, he taped over her mouth, and then he continued and taped her eyes and her nose as well. And so she died from suffocation. He claimed that he was trying to cut the tape off and slipped and ended up stabbing her in the throat. But some sources claim that he did this on purpose just because he wanted to. He stayed with her body for some time before he started to grab items he wanted to steal, like clothing, jewelry, her class ring, and random stuff. He wrapped up Laura's body with sheets and pillowcases and put her in the back of his truck. And apparently he slept in her room that night. When he woke up, he dressed in woman's clothing again, and he had his wig on, and he left, and a neighbor even thought that he was Laura leaving for work that day. He drove to a nearby church, and he slept in the back of his truck with Laura's body. Meanwhile, her co-workers and everyone were starting to get concerned, like, why isn't she here? And they start, like, the search for her. They check her house, and when no one answered, they got in touch with her brother, Warren, but he found no trace of her either. And I have to imagine that Haddon did like a pretty decent job cleaning up, but at the same time, I'm fairly certain that police knew something bad had happened, and they did try and do some searches for Laura. Meanwhile, Haddon buried her in a shallow grave on the side of Interstate 270, disposed of some of her things in the woods near the church he liked sleeping near. Penny still tried to tell police that Haddon was just a nice gardener, but they brought him in for questioning, and he didn't really have a good alibi, only that he was sleeping in his truck near the church, and there was no one that could really confirm this. They did let him go, but when they did a bigger search, they had these dogs that came and they found the items that hadn't hidden the woods, including a pillowcase with blood on it and a single fingerprint. Now, they didn't even wait for confirmation on the fingerprint before bringing Haddon back to question him again, and they told him that they had the pillowcase and his fingerprint on it, which they weren't even sure of at the time, but figured it would help push him to confess if it really was him. In the Curiosity Killed Nightcap podcast, they make it sound like Haddon was held illegally because he asked for his lawyer over a hundred times and they never called him. Haddon refused to say anything without his lawyer present. 
And they allegedly did all these like weird tactics to get him to talk, like having female officers try and kind of like seduce him and male officers intimidate him. And they said that officers grabbed Haddon's one-eyed teddy bear he liked to sleep with and tried to use that to make him talk. But in this account, he apparently spoke to the teddy bear once they were alone in the interrogation room. And he said, I don't think I'm getting out of this one. And I don't see any other sources mention this treatment of Haddon. But it is very possible that this was happening in the time leading up to them figuring out if this fingerprint was his. But basically, they really shouldn't have been holding him because they never got his lawyer after he asked for it, which I'm pretty sure is illegal. But they were able to confirm the print and they also got a hold of that hardware store check. So it was like pretty obvious that Haddon killed Laura. So they were finally able to arrest him. On June 14, 1993, Haddon pled guilty to second degree murder in court which only gave him a 30-year sentence in jail. And I'm surprised that they, like, went for this at all because first-degree murder is premeditated, okay? It needs to have been planned and thought out where second-degree is reacting in the moment. But he definitely planned to kill Laura. Look at the damn check he filled out. But regardless, he did finally end up in jail and had that 10-year sentence for tormenting the Mahaney family tacked on there, too. Haddon stupidly started to brag about killing Michelle Dore while he was in prison, and the inmates did beat the shit out of him for this, and it got so bad that they actually had to keep Haddon away from the other prisoners and separate him for a while for his own safety, but some also saw this as an opportunity to maybe get out of jail earlier if they gave police some good information. Another prisoner in the cell beside Haddon's told police all this information that Haddon confessed to him about Michelle because Haddon actually thought that this guy was Jesus Christ and he called him that. And I guess he looked like Jesus, so that probably helped. But Haddon told this guy everything he did to Michelle. And so this guy then went and told police this and police then took Haddon and I guess we'll call the guy Jesus. They took them to actually go show them where Michelle had been buried. And Jesus tagged along because Haddon wanted him there. And Haddon also refused to do much of anything until they agreed to get him some women's clothing to wear. And they sent an officer to Kmart to do just that, get him a skirt and a blouse. And like the fact that they even did this for Haddon is a little mind boggling for me. But I guess it was the only way he would actually help them and point out where Michelle was buried. On top of that, though, he claimed to have killed a number of other women all around the Northeast because he spent a lot of time in both Rhode Island and Massachusetts where his family lived. To help prove his confession about Michelle's murder, they used luminol in Eliza Clark's old room where Haddon said he killed Michelle, and they found evidence all over that there was blood that he'd cleaned up. And they were able to even scrape up some samples of blood from in between the floorboards. And it took two years to even get this properly tested, and in the end, it was inconclusive anyway. But he was still tried and convicted of Michelle's murder in 1999, and he was sentenced to another 30 years in jail. And at 48, he would now be in jail for the rest of his life. And on his little outing with police and Jesus, he did actually show them where Michelle was buried. So that panned out, and that kind of proved without a doubt that he was the one that killed her. And what ended up happening was in 2000, they went to all these different states, Haddon, Jesus, and the police that Haddon claimed to have murdered women in and buried them, but they never found anyone else. They ended up in Wellfleet at one point, trying to dig up in the dunes, but it was like really impossible to do. So much time had passed, and it might have been hard to find a body there, even if there was one. But on his grandfather's old property in Wellfleet, they did dig up this metal bucket full of women's jewelry that Haddon had buried there 
and inside was Laura's class ring because he actually had ended up back there in Massachusetts before being questioned and arrested in Maryland for her murder. There was jewelry that is believed to have belonged to Michelle Dore and nearly 200 other pieces that I'm guessing if they ever tried to DNA test it, it, it would just be impossible because it was all mixed in in there. And he claimed that this was all jewelry from people that he killed. And so this is why people think he was a much more prolific serial killer than just these two women that he for sure definitely killed. Because it appears like he might have actually, if these were from victims, he killed a lot more people than just Michelle and Laura. I believe he was responsible for a lot of missing persons cases all over the Northeast. And he did admit to a number of other murders, but no one can prove that he was actually involved. And due to his mental state, most of the time he just gets written off, like with the Lady of the Dunes case. But he also admitted to killing nine-year-old Sarah Pryor, who disappeared from Wayland, Mass. in 1985. He claimed that he abducted a girl named Sarah and buried her remains in a cemetery in Wellfleet. But in 1995, a man walking his dog found a skull fragment near Weston, Mass., and it was later determined to belong to Sarah. So Haddon's story kind of lost some credibility from that, but I still think it should have been looked into deeper. Police believe it was actually John Wordy who killed Sarah because he had a list of violent charges against him, including murder, and he was like a really good suspect, but they have yet to been able to prove it was him either. Haddon also claimed to have killed girls in Connecticut when he was in culinary school, and he said he buried one of them on the grounds of Castle Craig in Meriden because he liked visiting there, but this also has never been proven. According to an article in The Current, police believe it could have been 12-year-old Doreen Vincent who went missing from Wallingford in 1988, but at the same time, they figured that crazy old Haddon was just spouting off tall tales and they don't think he actually killed her. And I will say, considering what we know about Haddon, it does seem a little bit unlikely that he would just choose kids to kill without having a reason to. He seems so transfixed on this idea of revenge that I don't see him as killing someone just to kill them. I think they would have had to have wronged him first. And if these girls had no connection to him, it does seem a little far-fetched to think that he was their killer. But still definitely something that they should thoroughly investigate. And why else would he have buried all this jewelry? What if it did belong to these people that he killed, but he was never able to point to another body, and so maybe he just wanted to, like, take a field trip and wear a wig? He did claim at one point to have killed someone as early as age 14 and that his father helped cover it up, which seems very unlikely to me, too. He also said that he cannibalized some of these other victims, but there would be no way to ever really know that for sure, and he didn't, as far as we know, do that to Laura. But there was one quote from him that basically had him saying that he ate these remains of these women and drank blood because he thought it would help him become a woman. So just kind of more proof of just how out of touch with reality Haddon probably was. One anecdote from the Born Evil book that they talk about in the Nightcap podcast was that Haddon would only eat rotten food in jail. Like they would give him meat and he'd let it spoil and get gross before he wanted to eat it and he loved it being gross and old like this and it it's just like foul and he had all these stomach issues because he was eating this rancid meat but he said that it was because that the the guards were trying to poison him which like okay sure if you want to believe that and one of the craziest things about this entire story is that Haddon was not the only cannibal in his family nope his brother Bradfield who I mentioned earlier 
also killed and cannibalized someone. So in 1984, he worked at a fancy tech company and he had this thing for a co-worker, Trisha Mack. And like a lot of details in this case, there's like conflicting things going on. So some say that she was actually dating Bradfield and then some say that she had a boyfriend or a husband, but regardless, Bradfield invited her over for dinner one night and her significant other couldn't go. Which was good for Bradfield because he tried putting the moves on Trisha and in some accounts, drugs were involved. Some said that she immediately smacked him and she got upset that he tried anything on her. And some said that she was into it because they were both a little drunk. But he got more and more aggressive until he finally grabbed her and slammed her head against a wall. And he may have even bit off one of her nipples beforehand, which was when she really freaked out. I mean, obviously. And she died from this trauma to her head where he slammed it and that he strangled her. But then he cut off both her breasts and cooked them on his grill and then ate them. He then hid her body in his home for a few days before moving it to her, his truck. And police actually came and looked around his house because Trisha's husband told them that she was missing and that she planned to go over Bradfield's for dinner. But they didn't find anything out of the ordinary and he claimed that he hadn't seen her. But the entire thing freaked him out so much that he attempted to kill himself by stabbing himself a few times. But they were like superficial enough that it didn't it didn't like kill him or anything and he ended up calling 911 and when police and ambulance arrived he admitted to everything and told them Trisha's body was in his truck. He got 15 years to life in prison in California and according to the Nightcap podcast he confessed to other cannibalistic murders around the east coast but I have no idea what came of that. It's pretty hard to find any info on Bradfield because Haddon's crimes completely overshadow anything about him so you can take this story about him with a little grain of salt because it's hard to research him. He's only ever really mentioned briefly, and it's usually in an article about Haddon. So this is Haddon Clark, who was one of the more eccentric killers, I think, that we have looked at. I really do wonder if he had multiple personalities, if he actually killed more people than just Michelle and Laura, if he was struggling with his gender identity in a way that no one was compassionate about. Are there a bunch of women and girls buried in the sand in Wellfleet somewhere? Did he kill the Lady of the Dunes in 1974? Does all that jewelry belong to victims? Like, I think that's what really bothers me is that jewelry. And I think it's what bothers a lot of people too. I wonder if they ever tried to get other people to identify any of it. I don't ever want to say I feel bad for people who hurt other people, but Haddon doesn't feel totally evil to me. Just very disturbed and just very, very not well. Now, we don't know a ton about Bradfield, but he feels scarier to me than Haddon. Like, a seemingly normal guy barbecuing up some lady he liked? Like, no. Nope. I'm good. I'm set. So what do you think? Did Haddon kill a lot more women? Is he just some revenge-obsessed schizophrenic with gender identity issues? I don't know. And maybe one day he'll give a real location for another victim, but until then, we just, we won't know. So if you want to check out my sources, you can find them on my website, wickedxcrime.wordpress.com. You can find me on my Twitter at wicked underscore crime, Instagram at wickedxcrime, and you can also find me on Facebook if you look up wicked crime. And you should actually check out some of my social media because I posted a link on there about an update on the Stuart Weldon case. And if you hadn't heard of him, he is a Springfield serial killer who got arrested in 2018 
And now about a month before he was set to stand trial, he pled guilty. And it's kind of an interesting case. I do plan to cover it in the future at some point. So you can go check that link out if you want. The music in this episode is by a guy whose name I hope you know by now, Kevin McLeod. Which I probably say wrong every time, but like, it's fine. I don't think he listens. I'm sure he's not offended. As always, take care of yourself. Look after yourself. Please don't ever eat people. Even if one of your alter egos is into it, okay? Thank you. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.